This is Terrify Me, a podcast about scary things in fact, fiction, and folklore. I'm your host, Anthony Frost. For this week's episode, I got together for a little chat with uh, Martin Shannon. He is a multi-million word author of thrilling horror and speculative fiction. He's a dedicated husband and a father to one scary smart teenager. Through it all, he remains a die-hard fan of horror, fantasy, science fiction, and a lover of all things creepy. Marty does his best writing in the pre-dawn hours, when it's just him and Jack, his golden retriever whose intestinal clock plays an important role in just why Marty's up at that hour. Marty loves to write fast-paced, fantastical fiction, stories that make you want to stay up far too late to find out the answer to that most compelling of questions, and then what happened. You can find Marty on social media, uh at Tales of Weird FL on Twitter and Instagram, as well as hanging out on his back porch, banjo in one hand and word processor in the other. This is a quite a craft-heavy episode for the writers in the audience, which I believe is actually most of my audience, so yeah, hopefully you'll find something of value. Um, Martin's big into the whole serial thing, right? Like Kindle Valor and all that. So yeah, it's uh, a little different from most of the writers I speak to who usually focus more on, you know, discrete short stories and novels. So for anyone who's curious about uh, going to that kind of writing, especially in the sort of horror or, you know, thriller or other sort of speculative genres, then I think that there's some real value here. All right, that said, let's dive straight in. Welcome, Martin Shannon. Uh, How are you doing today? All good? Yeah, I'm well. Thank you for asking. Awesome. All right. So I always sort of open with the same question. You know, what got you into scary stories? Uh, you know, I got into scary stories, like I said in, in my uh, in my bio, to avoid uh, weeding as a kid. Um, I, I basically, you know, I, I got into the same kinds of things that most of us did in the uh, in the eighties. You know, Dungeons and Dragons and the role playing games and the fantasy novels and things like that. And, you know, as you get older, then you start to want stuff that's a little more edgy, that's a little darker, um, you know, and, and your tastes start to evolve. Um, and then, you know, I, uh, without going into details, a little bit of a, of a health emergency about, uh, well, I want to say about five, six years ago, sort of led to a, if you want to do this, you better do it now because no one is promising you tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I jumped in at that point and decided it was worth anything worth doing was worth doing well. So practice a lot and uh, try to get better. Awesome. Now you, you, uh, so you describe your work as um, modern pulp. So I was curious um, if you could dive into that a little bit. You know, what does what does modern pulp mean to you? Sure. So um, one of the things that I, I'm abjectly terrible at is outlining. Uh, it's just not a strong suit. I, I cannot sort of pre-write the novel and, or the story or the serial, or whatever, in an outline and then write it because it, it feels very flat. It feels very boring. So uh, it was during this sort of initial time in my writing career that I was trying to find a, a, a method or a process that didn't require me to do that. Um, you know, instead of learning how to outline, I just decided I would spend all my time trying to wait to find a way to not need to know how to outline. 
So um, what that led to was a uh, writing, um, sort of an article written back in the, I want to say back in the in the 30s, I think, uh, a gentleman by the name of Lester Dent, a a very well known at the time uh, serial and uh, pulp fiction writer, uh, wrote a lot of fantastic stories, scary stories, weird tales, things like that. But he was very successful during the the you know the Depression era, and what he did uh, around that time was he wrote up sort of his formula for writing these sort of pulpy, action-y kind of stories. And the formula was great in that it said, you don't have to outline. And so it was, it was manna from heaven for me. It was an opportunity for me to, to write an, an action-y, a, a fast-paced story without needing to sit down and pre-write the story so that I could write the story. His, uh, his take on pulp uh, fiction, you know, sort of uh, exciting plots and um, and you know, heroes that struggle was uh, very much steeped in the language of his time. So it was very much steeped in that 1930s parlance. I mean, he uses phrases like the hero gets it in the neck. And, you know, I mean, I, that that doesn't resonate with me. I mean, I think it's funny, but it doesn't resonate with with modern readers. So what I had to do is I had to take what makes those stories you know, what made his model so clean and so so easy to understand and, and so exciting. And I had to sort of modernize it for a, a you know, a more, uh, a more modern audience. Um, I think readers today like fiction that moves very fast. They, by and large, they're not big fans of uh, heavy descriptive prose. Again, I say this, there's probably half the listeners on the uh, on the podcast right now are going, ah, oh, what does this Martin guy know? I love that heavy prose. Well, and then there's always going to be people, the exceptions to the rule. But I would say people like their fiction fast. They like it very dialogue heavy. Uh, they really do. And I, I think it's because of things like television and, uh, you know, the streaming shows and podcasts like the podcast we're on. But even the fiction podcasts, I think people like snappy fast moving content so i try to do that and i try to take that sort of pulp concept that uh that four-part concept that you know the hero struggling and you know the, the dark moment and then you know all looks lost and then they come through at the end and the twists i try to take all that and i try to wrap it in a more modern storytelling so it's dialogue heavy it moves uh it moves at a rapid pace Every section ends with a with a twist, right? With a um, you know, with something to jar the reader and to make them want to turn the page and and go on to the next uh, section, the next chapter, the next episode, you know, whatever it is. To me, that's that's modern pulp. That's the the magic of traditional pulp fiction in that it was it was story driven, but wired up with some nice. Uh, some nice dialogue, some snappy, uh, you know, uh, uh, movement, and a little bit of, uh, of introspection, a little bit uh, between the ears that I, I think more contemporary audiences like. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I, I, I do agree that uh, modern audiences do tend to go for the quicker paced stuff. And uh, Alex Woodrow, uh, a writer and editor who I interviewed a little while ago, uh, actually pretty much said the same thing so that you can't really do slow starts anymore. You know, everything's got to be, no. yeah, it's got to be like first page action sort of stuff. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is difficult for me because I tend to write the slow stuff. But, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And I'm sure there's audience for it. I mean, they're out there. Mm. I, you know, there seems to be an audience for, for just about everything. The, the struggle is like you like, like it's your last uh, guest said, and like you just mentioned, is that a lot of people, you got, you got like, it used to be you had like the first page, they used to say, right? You can't get somebody mm-hmm. by the end of the first page. Now I think you have like six words, right? It seems like you have to go breathtakingly fast because you know the average audience is used to being able to skip to the next show, skip to the next the next you know piece of music, skip to the next you know thirty second video, skip to the next tweet, skip to the next. So if you can't catch him in the first, whew, like I said, the first sentence, the first six words, you're you're toast. Mm. So you uh, you mentioned a person whose sort of model you've adopted, um, a writer from the 30s. Are there any other sort of uh, pulp fiction writers from back in the day that you sort of feel quite inspired by? Oh yeah, I mean, depending on the on the genres, uh, you know, the older style writers. I I find the I I think the the uh, Robert Howard uh, Conan. Um, I loved the way that he created those the the mythology of those uh of those books and he did it in such a way that you can really pick up any of them you can grab a, a you know a conan story off the shelf read it enjoy it for what it is and and put it down sort of knowing that that you know the the you know the wild barbarian will be off doing his next adventure and you know you'll find another book at some point and pick it up and enjoy it and i i've always been a fan of that uh, because to me, it, it feels like the, the the heroics are still going on, even when the book is sitting on the table. In other words, or when the story is closed, I know there's something else coming. I'm a big fan of uh, of Michael Moorcock. Um, Michael Moorcock did uh, Elric, the uh, the White Wolf, um, and he did a huge series of um, of that same sort of pulpy model. And what, what I like about all these guys is that you can really tell they don't plan anything. Uh, I remember reading an interview with, with, with Moorcock, who's now I think in his eighties or nineties, who said when he preps uh, to, to prepare for to write an Elric or, or the like story, he literally just makes a list and he writes down, you know, like, like the screaming towers. And he has no idea what that means. So the screaming towers, that sounds neat. And then he writes another thing down, you know, the swamps of suddenness or something. I mean, he comes up with all of these different things um, to, uh, to, to attempt to try and, uh, and jog his, uh, his uh, you know, his creative juices, right? And maybe he'll use some of them, maybe he won't. But I, I found that I do sort of the same thing. You know, when I'm working on The Last Sunrise, when I'm working on uh, any of the weird Florida novels or any of the different uh, uh, pieces that I have, I'll often just write down phrases, words, names, places, you know, pictures that come to mind. I don't know what it means. No clue. And probably half of it ends up on the cutting room floor and never used. But I I feel like if I do that, then I get, um, I have enough to kind of, sort through as I go. And, and like anything, it, it never exactly goes the way you want it to, right? You write three chapters and you're kind of looking at it going, 
oh, yeah, so this is the way we're going. Okay. Um, you know, and, and again, with the model I like, is since it has to end with a twist, sometimes the twists are not things I expected at all. And, you know, I'll write them and I'll, I, I love to sort of force myself to say, well, all right, you wrote it. So how are you going to fix, uh, figure out that one tomorrow? You know, how are you going to make sense of that one? And I find that, um, you know, it, it helps. I, I think it, it uh, you know, using the things like, like Moorcock said and like, uh, you know, Howard liked to do uh, helps you create sort of a, an exciting world that if you, the writer, don't know where it's going, then the reader will have absolutely no clue. Hmm. So do you think that sort of um, that fun exploratory style of writing, do you reckon that's what makes it kind of feasible to keep up with the pace of writing serials? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you were to try to do a serial and uh, and to try to pre-plan, I mean, I know people that pre-plan their serials and that's I'm God bless those people. They, I am so happy there are people like that in the world because those people are not like me. I could never do that. I could never pre-plan a, uh, a serial. For me, I, I find that in order to do a serial, I, I, I go back to what I know. I look at the, the Lester Dent model. It's a four-part model. So every four episodes is like a mini, a mini arc in the serial. So one episode sort of sets the stage and introduces who will be there in this scene. The next episode, in, in, in specifically in The Last Sunrise, the serial that I write, our, our heroine Mal, um, short for Mallory, she'll do something boneheadedly stupid and, and aggressive and, you know, it, it, to try to solve a problem, which will, of course, make it worse. And by the third episode, things will get real bad. But don't worry, because Mal can, nothing is so bad that Mal can't make it worse. Then, of course, by the fourth, things get even more hairy and she has to pull it out or find some way to solve it. And we solve it only to move on to the next twist and the next turn of the screw where we start this another four part vignette all over again. Um, you know, serials are, are fun to write. They're very challenging, um, but they're fun to write. And I think as a reader, depending on, on the author, I think they can be a lot of fun to read because you know, they are, they're like the, uh, the, the, remember this, the television show lost, mm -hmm. uh, when lost was aired on television, a lot of people loved it. A lot of people hated it, but lost was essentially a, a television serial that just kept doing crazy stuff at the end of every couple of episodes, just to throw you off and to make you go, what? <laughs> and then you'd have to be, you know, you'd watch the next one just because you got to know what happens. And I think a, a well-written serial does that. Now, when you sit and look at a serial once it's over as a whole, it, it's the most confusing, crazy, long thing you've ever seen. But when you're neck deep in it, you're, you're enjoying it. You're just having fun moving from one, you know, one episode to the next. Or at least that's what I tell myself at night, that you're having fun and you're enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose it's, it's very different so, um, from working in more discrete forms, like, uh, you know, standalone short stories or novels. Right. Yeah, uh, I imagine a particular challenge would be sort of, you know, maintaining that quick pace and, you know, the, the episodic format while still managing to get in enough character development and world building. Is there a particular way you go about that? Or? Yeah, the last serial I did, um, The Last Sunrise, which is on uh, Amazon, is, uh, is told in a first-person viewpoint. So I could get 
really tight, narrow band focus in uh, our, our, our hero's head. And I try to weave, you know, a hundred words, maybe, maybe less, maybe 50 worth of, of inner conflict, inner um, you know, concern, frustration, little, even a few sentences of the past, not enough to, to paint a whole picture but enough to give you a sketchy outline and start to form your own opinions about that character. Every episode for me, every episode is 1500 words, almost on the nose. The goal, I feel like 1500 words is about six to eight minutes of reading for an average individual. And that's plenty of time, you know, stuck in a line somewhere, picking up your kid from school or, uh, you know, on a, on, on a bus, on the tube, whatever, going from one place to the next eight minutes is a, that's a decent read, right? That's enough time. So in that 1500 words, I try to make sure depending on where I'm at in my little mini four part vignette, green, yellow, orange, red, where am I at? Then I know, okay, I got to make sure if we're in green, I've got, I, I've got, this is my opportunity to give you a little build, but I have to end on a sharp twist to make you, to keep you excited, to keep you coming back. If I'm in yellow, all right, we're piling on some problems, but we're going to end with another twist. We think we've had some success, but we actually haven't. If I'm in orange, it's, it's tremendous problems. It's, oh crap, this is, you know, bad time. And then of course, if we're in red, we have to, to, you know, it looks like it's all, you know, all over, but then we're going to save it at the last minute. Something she'll do, we'll save the day. And then we're right back into a twist, taking us into the next scene. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a challenge. Again, as long as I know what color, what, what chapter I'm in, what part of this little four-part vignette, then I'm, I tend to be okay. I think, I think serials like that do best when they have a very simple sort of uh, a small cast, a discrete uh, number, you know, a, an area that, that they can, you know, a, a setting rather that they can work within that's not overly complex because I can't spend a lot of time explaining. I only have so many words. So I, I, I find that if I'm doing something, let's say I was writing a sci-fi serial, which I did uh, earlier in the year, I'd have to kind of make the sci-fi very, uh, for lack of a better word, Star Warsy, right? It, I want, I want to use all the same terms that you're used to hearing. You know, maybe if I was writing this in the 1900, early 1900s, I, I could say things like force fields and, and shields up and, and, you know, plasma cannons and people wouldn't know what the hell I was talking about. But I can say all that stuff today because we all play video games. We're all used to Master Chief and Halo and God knows what else. So I, I get, you get that advantage. And, and since you've got such a small amount of words to work with, use that advantage. Take, you know, you explain, you use the barest uh, bones to try to make sure you get the scenery across without, you know, let the, let the reader fill in the details in their head. We've only got so many words to work with. Mm, yeah, that's sort of very like minimalist uh, in terms of word count, but maximalist in terms of impact, I suppose, is the goal. You have to, you have to kind of crunch it all down into a tiny yeah. little box. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Brian Evanson as a writer I'm quite fond of who um, sort of his prose style is a bit like that. He tends to be, but it, it's like his prose is deceptively simple. Like it paints quite a rich picture, but he does it. And like he almost sort of does it when you're not looking. Right. It's, it's a, well, and he does it probably in such a way that, 
that you're painting the rest of the picture. He's almost yeah. giving you the color by numbers and you're filling it in as he goes. That's precisely and, and it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, there's magic in that. Hmm. There, listen, there will always be people out there. Um, um, China Meville, I think is how you pronounce it. The, the guy who wrote uh, Perdido Street Station mm -hmm. and uh, Rail C and some of these, I mean, this guy has descriptive skill that that's borderline remarkable, right? I mean, oh, yeah. level of description, and he has to because his worlds are so fantastical. You, you mm -hmm. have to explain it to me or I won't, I'll be completely lost. But um, that ends up with very thick books. You know, you end up mm -hmm. with a big, thick book trying to cover all that. I, I like it, but at the same time, I'm with you. I like it when someone gives me a very, a, a, a paint by numbers, if you will, and I'm filling in the rest of the details as we go. And, you know, I, I think that it's funny. I think that the authors who do that, people love to comment about how descriptive they are. And if you probably cornered them, they would say, geez, I'm not descriptive at all. I, I give you just the barest amount of stuff. But you, you feel like they're descriptive because you filled mm. it all in yourself. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I, there's, a, there's a magic to that. And I think certain people like this guy you're talking about can, can do it. I try. I don't know if I do it, but I, I try. Mm. Yeah, I think um, it works particularly well for like horror and weird fiction and anything sort of with dread and you know stuff like that because you know that's sure, where you, less is more. Yeah, yeah, you you want the reader's mind to be uh, running around in little circles, right? And uh, speaking of that sort of darker side of genre fiction, uh, that is generally the realm in which well the, the work of yours that I've read anyway um, tends to operate. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, how is Kindle Vela as a sort of outlet for that? So that's not something we have in this country, so I don't know much about it. It's, it's an odd duck, I think, is the best way to describe it. I think, I, I think that the concept is sound. Uh, the concept of that serialized fish, I mean, it should be. It's been very successful in a number of different places. It's been successful in... Uh, overseas, it's big in Asia, it's big um, in you know some of those parts of the world. Um, I think Kindle Vela is an interesting platform. It, like all serialized platforms, romance is the unbelievably dominant player. I mean, it's it's the 800, 900 pound gorilla in the room, right? It truly is. There is a small contingent of, uh, of horror writers on um, on Vela, which is funny because Vela doesn't even have a horror genre. When you go in to categorize your story, horror is not an option. So um, you have to kind of pick things like paranormal and suspense, thriller, and something. I mean, everybody has got a different combination, but somehow horror was left off the list. Um, we, we hold out hope that at some point it will be put on the list, but um, for some reason it was left, uh, left off the list. Um, the level you know, of disrespect. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. I don't, you know, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know. Maybe they know more. I mean, I'm sure they know more than I do. Maybe they, they did that on purpose. Maybe they were focused more on, on some other things. I don't know. Um, I like the, the, the things about the platform I really like. I like the way it's designed as far as a, from an author standpoint, the, this, the setup for, inputting your fiction you can you can stick a word doc in there and it formats everything cleanly um that's nice i like the the, the graphics the the concept of the graphics for kindle vela is is very simple it's a 1600 by 1600 square and they of course 
cut out a chunk of it to make it into a circle, but you're very limited in what you can do because these circles are gonna become like the size of your thumb. I mean, when you, when you open these things up on a phone or on a tablet, they're, they're tiny. I mean, maybe they're the size of a silver dollar if you're lucky. So you're somewhat uh, restricted in what you can do. And I think that means you have to get kind of creative. And you, you're as an author, I'm not. I don't have to spend a lot of time worrying about things like like type typography, and you know where am I going to place the text, and how am I going to set up my cover, and what work. No, man, you've got 1600 by 1600 pixels to work with. Don't kill yourself. You want it to pop. You want people to see it, and then you can move on. So I, I think those things are really nice. Um, the the using the the service on the phone and on the iPad. Is, uh, is still a work in progress. I think the Kindle application itself is, has been designed around reading eBooks. So it's still a little, a, a little uh, difficult to know where to press and where to go as you're moving through it. I mean, I see people learning it for the first time, trying to figure out where to go. You know, how do I, how do I thumbs up a story? What's a fave? How does this work? Don't ask me, Glenn. I, I can't even describe all those things. It's, a, it's sort of a gamification of the platform. But the concept is there and it makes sense. I wish, um, I wish more people knew about it. I, I wish that there was a little more exposure for it uh, from a you know, sort of general audience. I think a lot of people who know about it are authors. I don't think a lot of, of readers know about it or know it exists yet. Uh, I wish they did. I, I'd love to see a, a spread of commercials on TV about it. Right. I'd love to see something, you know, I, I can imagine a commercial where someone's, you know, standing in the checkout line and and, you know, Vikings run past them or or a Harlequin romance person dances by or somebody with a knife or an axe. And then they look up from their phone and they've oh, they've been reading their Kindle Bella on their phone. And oh, yes, I'll pay for my checkout now and off I'll go. Right. The, the adventures, the stories, they go with you anywhere. And Amazon, if you use that after listening to me, you owe me money. So uh, <laughs> bottom line, I wish more people knew about it. I really do. I wish more people knew about it. I wish that there was a, um, there was a broader audience for it because I think it fits the way people want to consume fiction today. I think it, it fits that kind of TikTok generation, that you know, moving fast uh, model. But I just think too many people don't even know it's there. And I, I think mm. that's really the struggle right now is they just they don't know it's there yeah yeah and i think um so i, I know a lot of younger people um they, they really go for like the the light novels and stuff like that like the east asian stuff the translated works or things in that style which is mm -hmm. you know it's serial fiction like it's the same it thing is. basically but yeah i think i don't know that amazon's really putting the work in to make it happen like, you know, they haven't rolled it out to any other countries yet. It's just in the U.S. Yeah. Like, that seems nuts to me. Yeah, like, they have, like they have the software. No, I, you know, why, why can't I access Vela in the U.K.? I'd love to read some serial fiction, but, you know, is what it is. It is, and I, I wish I had an answer for you. I have no idea. It doesn't make any sense to me. It, it, you, it would seem to me that unless there was some kind of truly challenging copyright law, but, I mean, I figured they have... Amazon eBooks in the UK. I can't see why. What would be any different? Um, it, it strikes me as very odd. I would have thought, given that we're we're closing in on a year since the platform was launched, 
I would have thought by now we would have seen something or even an announcement saying, hey, in May, we're going to open up here. I, I would have expected that at, at this point, but you just haven't seen anything. So it, it, it is it is odd. I, I'm, I'm certainly not going to not going to lie. It's uh, it's very strange. Mm, particularly odd. But just um, going back to sort of the content of your work in particular, um, you, the stuff I've read from you has featured a lot of, you know, very classic uh, horror sort of tropey monsters like ghosts and vampires. And I'm sort of curious about, you know, like you don't write them necessarily in the sort of standard traditional way. So I was just, uh, <laughs> I'd like to dig into sort of the way in which you write your supernatural elements, uh, like, you know, sure. what inspires them. Okay, so with the, some of the things on the website and some of the different uh, shorter works I've done, I, I sometimes I'll use traditional uh, monsters like the the vampire, for instance, in The Last Sunrise. Uh, Mallory is, is I, our vampires, the ones I, I write, are uh, a little more like the vampires in, um, in one of the latter Blade movies where the faces unfold. And they have these long, like, like stinger sort of tongues where the whole, the whole face opens up. I, I like the monsters to be a little more visceral, uh, to be a little, I, I, I could never write a sparkly vampire to save my life. That, that just wouldn't happen. Right. I like them. I like them bloody and disgusting and, and addicted and uh, conflicted. Um, and then as far as, as some of the other stories have done, I've tried to, I tried to see what would, uh, what would sort of scare me. I, I did a series, uh, on my website called the soul eaters. And I, I decided the tagline for that was not all vampires drink blood. And for that one, I, I have been exposed and, and some people will in their lives be exposed to, to individuals that suffer from um, dementia and uh, Alzheimer's, where they lose their memories. They're, uh, they start to be confused in their homes, and, and it's, it's terrible. It's terrible to watch. But at the same time, it's terrifying. And The Soul Eaters is a story about vampires, if you will, that steal memories. And they steal, um, you know, steal your life by taking away those bits of memory and by taking apart what, you know, the things that you hold dear. And um, it was a difficult series to write. It was a, um, it, it touched on a lot of things. I figure if, if I don't get uncomfortable writing it, then I really haven't written horror yet. I should feel uncomfortable while I'm writing. It should, and it doesn't have to be uncomfortable and gory. It doesn't have to be be violent and, and, you know, torture fiction and things like that, that doesn't really do anything for me. I prefer a story where I've told it to you and your brain is still turning it over in your head afterwards. You know, you're thinking about those things and you're thinking, okay, if I had to survive, but I had to steal someone's memories to do it, could I do that? And, and how would I feel about that when it was over? And, you know, that, sort of rush of power, but at the same time, the, the, uh, the guilt and the shame that would come along with it. And, you know, how would you try to reconcile those things? And of course, the, the it was an interesting story. I loved it. I had a lot of fun doing it. I don't know that it's, that it, uh, it resonates with everyone, but I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, mm. as far as, as the other, 
the other monstrous characters in the in my uh, my urban fantasy series all takes place in Florida. So everything in the weird Florida urban fantasy is monsters that are takes on Florida. We have uh, we have our vampires are more like mosquito people. Our you know we have all, giant alligator men. We have uh, you know just. You know, heck, one of the plot devices is a is a flock of plastic pink, pink flamingos, and it sounds very kitsch. But the deeper and the deeper you go into the stories, the darker that it can become. Um, you know, I I like to take those sorts of things. I like to take those kinds of of monsters and and try to humanize them a little bit, because I think by doing that, you make them a lot more scary. Because you, as the reader, start to question how you would be in that same situation. And I think that's what, that's, you know, as a writer, that's all, I mean, that's the highest of praise. It's all we can really hope for is to get a reader to, to feel like they're part of it and to have the story stick with them after it's over. That's a very sort of a personal, um, I don't know, I was going to say personal horror, but, um, you know, thinking especially in terms of the, you know, the soul eater, like memory vampire thing. Yeah, I imagine that's, yeah. I mean, I guess an interesting thing about putting sort of monsters in the sort of narrator's seat as well um, is that you can explore sort of the impact that becoming a monster has on a person. Mm-hmm. And it's good to see someone that is doing that like, um, and sort of like still not afraid to make the characters actually monstrous. You know, it's like, it's like you were saying and about I, sparkly yeah. vampires. It's like, yeah, uh, no, no. Mallory is an abjectly terrible person. Um, hmm. Abjectly terrible person. She is not good. She makes terrible choices. But at the same time, as you learn more about her and as you watch the decisions that she makes, she's she tries. She tries hard. And she still fails. She still fails miserably. She's, you know, I, I try to describe her as the person who's who's trying to diet and they they say today i'm not going to eat the hamburger we'll say and then they make it to the end of the day they didn't eat the hamburger but they say i've done such a wonderful job i'll just have a hamburger because i was able to make it this whole day without doing that or i'm going to diet tomorrow right i i will have the salad tomorrow that's when i'll start and of course she doesn't and we know she won't but she'll beat herself up for what she does and the choices that she makes. But at the same time, I want you to feel a little of that humanity. I want you to feel a little of that. I do the same thing. You know, I'm the guy that says I'm going to do X and then I either forget or I put it off. You know, we all do those things. We all promise ourselves, you know, up one side and down the other, that this is the day I'm going to run and I'm going to love it. And it's going to be great. And then maybe you run, maybe you run that, that day. And you're like, this is awesome. I'm going to have three beers now. You know, you, we make those kinds of terrible choices. Now, of course, in the sake, in the case of Mallory, someone dies, there's blood, there's, there's shame. There's, you know, there's a, a sort of visceralness to it, but we all know what it feels like to say, we're going to do something and then not say, we're going to, we're going to follow through with something and then not. And I think that's, that's what, what I'm trying to bring home. That's what I try to, how I try to make this feel more, 
more realistic. I mean, as, as realistic as a face opening vampire can be, right? But right. there's a there's a humanity to it that if I if I get it right, then you find yourself rooting for. And then, you know, 1600 words later, you're going, oh, man, why was I rooting for this person? And you're questioning yourself at the same time. Like, you want her to do that. Oh, yes, mess that guy up. And then afterwards, you're going, oh, why was I doing it? What, what was I thinking? Why, why am I? I can't, I can't support this. But then you read on because just like Mallory, you say, no, 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 I'm going to get it. It's going to be okay. I'll keep going. I mean, that's, that's the goal, right? You know, we, we're, all, we're all human at the end of the day. We all make mistakes. My goal is to just make those things that are monstrous feel human and then make you question why you're feeling good about a monster. That's, I mean, I, I want you to walk away conflicted from things you read. I, I, I absolutely do. That's my goal. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Feeling a bit uh, cooled out there when you were talking about, you know, the hamburger and starting a diet. I definitely had that exact <laughs> conversation with myself many times. Um, then maybe you'd have enjoyed the, when the cereal uh, uh, is done at, at Kindle Vela and out as a book. Maybe I'll send you a copy so you can uh, you can see it. Yeah, please do. I would actually really enjoy that. I, I read the, the first bit of uh, The Last Sunrise on your website and quite enjoyed it. I'm Excellent. interested to read more uh, when the opportunity arises. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So I just really had, you know, sort of one more question, which was about sort of genre boundaries in, you know, pulp fiction. They seem kind of a lot more fluid than in novels or lit max or whatever. So where would you place your own work on the whole? Like, do you, do you vary a lot from story to story or do you sort of generally play yes. the same? Yeah. <laughs> no, I try to vary things a lot. I, I depends on what I'm doing. Um, I will, I mean, right now I have a, you know, I have a very eclectic mix. I have a weird, uh, what I call a weird West or a weird Southern Gothic uh, series. It's much more poetic. It's, um, it's, it's dark of course, but it's, it, it to very much a fantastical, um, you know, gunslingery kind of world. Uh, I've also written a, a number of uh, science fiction series. So there are, uh, you know, there's the, the Stars Without End and uh, there is, uh, you know, a couple other ones that I've done. And then there's the things like The Weird Florida and The Last Sunrise, which are very much grounded in, in the here and now but uh, chock full of the fantastical. I, I tell you what I can't do. It is incapable. I, I am incapable of writing anything that doesn't have some fantastical element. Um, you know, I, I could never have written something like The Tale of Two Cities or uh, War and Peace or Pride and Prejudice. I would have been the guy who would have put zombies in Pride and Prejudice. I would have been the guy whose who's copy of War and Peace included dragons uh, or, or something, or, you know, trans-dimensional tanks. I don't know. I can't do, I have tried. I've tried so many times. I write between 1,500 and 3,000 words every day. And I have tried so many times to write something that doesn't have a fantastical element in it and buy you know, 900, 800, 750, a thousand words, bang, there's some fantastical element. And I'll, you know, I'll shake my fist at the screen. Damn it. I said I wasn't going to have a hamburger today. And then sure enough, off I go. I cannot, I can't tell a tradition. I can't tell a story 
without including something something fantastical in it. And, you know, it's just, I've kind of reached the point where that's sort of who I am. And I, I accept that now. Um, I figure the, the world has plenty of Tom Clancy's. It has plenty of, um, of Lee Childs. It has plenty of people to write wonderful, wonderful, well-researched, outlined, you know, stories. Great. But there's maybe a, a, a pocket, a, a space where I can play in that fits me and lets me just do whatever the hell it is I feel like doing on that day. As long as it contains a fantastical element, it'll work. Perfect. All right. I think uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate the chance to speak to you. Absolutely my pleasure. I had a wonderful time. Thank you for having me. Well, I think that was fun. Marty is a really nice guy, a really sort of genuine character. Um, There's links to all of his stuff in the episode description, and and I recommend checking them out. Uh, Now, in terms of, you know, personal updates from me, um, let's see what's going on. I've been listening to ye old crime podcasts still. You know, there's a fair backlog for me to work through, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, What else have I listened to recently? Oh, Behind the Bastards are doing a crossover with The Dollop, all about Kissinger. Um, who they're describing as the Forrest Gump of war crimes. It's very funny. It's very entertaining. For anyone who's into you know American history, world history, uh, I would recommend that. It's good fun. And reading-wise, I am working my way through Weave World at the moment by Clive Barker. I've only ever read uh, Clive Barker's sort of early horror work before, so this is a bit different. But it's still, you know, it's still definitely Barker. But it's also very much a fantasy novel. So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's a long old read, and I'm only about a third of the way through at the moment, so it's too early to say how I feel about it, you know, in totality. But, yeah, it's good. Um, as ever... If you have any scary stories you'd like me to read on the podcast, you know, personal experiences of yours or just weird stuff that's happened that you know about that doesn't seem to be getting a lot of uh, attention, then, you know, please email me at terrifymepod at gmail.com. Or if you just want to get in touch generally about anything else, uh, let's see. So next week and the week... After that, we'll be devoted to Spring Heel Jack, and I'm going to have a guest co-host on to sort of help me out, uh, because the solo episodes just feel a bit self-indulgent, and when I'm editing them and I have to listen to solely my own voice for a couple of hours, it's just not very nice for me. So, you know, I'm going to have someone on with me to chat about stuff. I think that'll be good. It'll be fun. Uh, and uh, that that's all I've got for you this week, so... Thanks for listening, and still no sign-off phrase. Thank you for listening to Terrify Me with Anthony Frost. The theme music is by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com and used under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at TerrifyMePod, all one word.
For more from me, visit anthonyfrost.com or follow me on Twitter at Anthony R. Frost. That's Anthony without an H. See you next time.